Welcome to the Think Yourself Healthy podcast, where we challenge you to think differently about your approach to health and wellness. My name is Heather Duranja, and I'm excited to be here with you to take you on the journey from surviving to thriving. Hello, everybody. I have a very special guest with us today on Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Dr. Nicole LaPera was trained in clinical psychology at Cornell University and the School for Social Research. She also studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. As a clinical psychologist in private practice, Dr. Nicole LaPera often found herself frustrated by the limitations of traditional psychotherapy. Wanting more for her patients and for self, she began a journey to develop a united philosophy of mental, physical, and spiritual health that equips people with the tools necessary to heal themselves. She is the creator of Self Healers Movement, where people from around the world are joining together in community to take healing in their own hands. Her first book, How to Do the Work, is available March 9, 2021. So exciting. Thank you so much, Dr. Nicole, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. I'm so excited. Your new book is coming out. We're just weeks away from the release. Finally, finally. How good does it feel to have that all behind you? It, it doesn't feel behind me in a lot of <laughs> I'm having all of the, I think, as a of parkourse, um, the whole journey of the book and writing it and birthing it and now you know, on the precipice of it, living in the world has, has been a wild ride, though one I am incredibly grateful for, of course. It's very exciting. I know writing a book feels like a daunting task, you know, where to get started, how to go about the whole process. So kind of talk to me a little bit about that. How did that all, you know, go for you? Yeah, if you would have asked me um, a decade ago, you know, if, if a book was in my future or if I resonated with being a, an author, quote unquote, if you will, um, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. It wasn't something that I imagined um, in my journey. I love books. Um, I you know, consume them voraciously, and it, they really helped me um, to understand myself and to form this new model of wellness, though not something, like I said, that I personally resonated with or, or thought maybe myself capable of. It's probably mm -hmm. one of limiting, you know, self-limiting beliefs. Um, however, using Instagram as my platform, um, using that really for me was an exercise in beginning to speak my voice, beginning to mm -hmm. embody this new truth of, of wellness, of holistic wellness, and of course, sharing my journey. Um, I, I, I saw very quickly how universally resonant a lot of these topics were. Um, I saw how, you know, there was many around the world that were struggling in the same ways I was struggling, healing in the same ways I was healing. And very soon I, I saw the, the need for a more comprehensive space to begin mm -hmm. to lay down these theories. Instagram is really helpful though. I think many of us are beginning to understand now the limitations just with social media in and of itself. So the book then was a, oh, huh, a book. Interesting. I guess I could put all of this down in a book. And mm -hmm. obviously then there was a lot of, it did feel like a hurdle. It did feel like, how can I think about the book and, and frame it in a start to finish comprehensive manner? Mm -hmm. so it was a, a process journey, meaning, you know, gradually, little by little, it did come together into quite a long book. So I am impressed by it all. And it, 
I think for a lot of us, like I said, yeah, it becomes, it, it is something we never consider for ourselves and or something that feels too big to even begin to approach. <laughs> yeah. So did you have any battling of the ego, any, you know, limiting beliefs that occurred throughout this process of trying to birth this book? Oh, so many different moments of it. Um, a big part of the initial journey was me traveling down the memory lane in a sense of mm -hmm. you know, remembering and, and thinking about myself at different developmental stages and calling to mind different events and experiences that I had um, so that I could lay them down into a narrative format. So just the exercise of that, I think, we all do that in our own mind when we revisit aspects of our past, either consciously or intentionally, I should say, or not so intentionally. Oh, there they are. Right. Um, that brings up a, a lot, um, a lot of judgment. I think that's our ego's favorite role is to mm -hmm. cast judgment on what it's hearing or what it's remembering or what it feels then in reaction to what it's hearing and remembering. So that was definitely a big part of my journey. And then, of course, there was the whole battle of, okay, well, great. What are people going to do with this book? How are they going to respond with this book? You know, what will it be like and what impact will it make? So I think both of those, the telling of my own journey and then obviously the imparting of tools, because that's another big part of the book. It's not just me using the narrative. It's me talking in a very practical way, bridging the gap between theory and action. So then, of course, there's all of the ego activation of how will it be for other people to, to do the work? <laughs> Right. That's, yeah, that's definitely a challenge, but how exciting, right? I, you know, for myself, I get um, very excited when I recognize that limiting beliefs start popping up and those are creating resistance for me, not stepping into my power and uh, showing up and being of service. So um, I can imagine that was probably a, a pretty exciting journey for you as well. Yeah, and, and I love that reframe um, because it can be exciting. You know, we can empower ourselves that while a lot of us are living right now in that stuck space, not able to create that change, that can be very disempowering. Though I think mm -hmm. if we're able to step back and, and to acknowledge, you know, kind of what it is and to embrace whatever the reframe is, for a lot of us, it's that shift um, into that empowered space, that excitement that, okay, well, this is now what? Um, and for a lot of us, that can allow us to expand. So knowing our limiting belief, that kept me stuck. Though now, mm -hmm. like I said, acknowledging it might be the, that little door open, that little opening that allows me to now create a new belief over time. Yeah, that's, that's exciting stuff. I love it. I feel our healing journey is a continuous movement. And we just have to keep showing up and giving ourselves permission, take out the judgment. I think for a lot of us, that tends to be, you know, <laughs> the hardest step. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what does it mean? What does it mean to do the work? I think, you know, you're, you're really, I love that you asked that, that question on the heels of the acknowledgement of the process aspect of it. Because um, what I very begrudgingly, Heather, came to realize in my own journey is that the work is consistent. These are new choices that we have to string together each and every day to create mm -hmm. meaningful withstanding change. Um, so for me, it's an action. It is bridging that gap between the concepts um, that whether or not they have been understandable or not into practical, right? So practicalizing in a sense, the concepts in and of itself and then translating them into action. And a lot of us get stuck mm -hmm. on that. 
um, because we have incredible amounts of insight that we either can't translate into action or we don't maintain it. We don't continue to make those new choices in a sustainable way. Before we know it, we're right back in to those old familiar ruts. So the work really and the title itself is illustrating the need for that consistent change. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that a lot of people have extreme self-awareness, right? We're, we're very aware of all of the stuff. However, um, we lack the ability to take the consistent action to, you know, keep moving forward. So what are your, what are your tips? What are your advice for the individuals out there who are feeling extremely frustrated with all of the self-awareness, but finding resistance with showing up consistently to take the action? Yeah. And this, this, this is a person I had been. Um, this was a person that I know I, I accumulated many hours walking alongside of in my old practice where we would have incredibly insightful sessions um, in my own life, right? Really piecing together the things that don't work with new plans of action. And me, of course, helping my, my clients do the same, yet week after week in my own life and in those clients' lives, I would see or hear um, reports of, mm, I still did that same thing, or mm, I wasn't able to maintain that choice beyond two or three days, and I'm right back in those old habits. Um, and the reason why, the simplest reason why, is that many of us that when we're in that mind of creating those new plans, using the past to inform you know, a future that's different, we're actually operating from a different awareness space. We are in the conscious mind. We are in our prefrontal cortex that lives right behind um, our forehead. When we're in daily action, more often than not, most of us are in that subconscious autopilot. So mm -hmm. the best laid plans for many of us are forgotten or are so uncomfortable to access because they're new, they're mm -hmm. unfamiliar. And the, the, the important piece of that subconscious world, that autopilot that I like to highlight is its preference to stay in the familiar. Even the familiar that's not logical, that's not the relationship we want, or that's not right the trajectory in life that we want to see ourselves marching down, yet it's the familiar because we've mm -hmm. been there in the past. So for a lot of us, it, it is the practice of building a new foundational habit of consciousness, of living now from that prefrontal cortex or from the conscious mind. So that while we might see and hear the pings that are very strong from our subconscious in real time, we can learn how to expand that space I was talking about earlier and begin to make new choices. Mm -hmm. So according to Dr. Bruce Lipton, he suggests that about 95% of the day we're operating from that autopilot place. We're in that subconscious mindset. And he said that, I think he quoted maybe 1%. We're lucky if 1% of the day we're using actual consciousness. Do you feel that when judgment starts to come into play, when we start to judge ourselves, is that the trigger that's really pulling us back into those autopilot behaviors? Judgment typically is a function of our ego. And our ego is a construction that lives in our subconscious, usually informed by our past. So yeah, the second you know, we, we, we find ourselves hearing that voice where we're comparing, where we're judging and 
we're often judging ourselves as less than the person with whom we're judging ourselves in comparison to. Yeah, that's typically a marker um, that mm -hmm. we're again operating from a different space. Okay. So, you know, I feel that self-love is a huge component of consciousness. And for so many individuals, you know, from a young age, we're not really taught how to love ourselves. It's a, a concept that isn't truly embraced. So what is your advice to individuals out there that are really struggling with that self-love piece? How do I start to love myself? What, what kind of tips Absolutely. I, I love this question, Heather, because love is a, a practice. It's an action, mm -hmm. it's a set of actions. Um, self, let me just define how I define self. I think that we're an interconnected being. We're a physical body. So I believe self-love has a component of how, how do I respect and honor and care for the, this vessel, just my physical needs, in a way that works for me, which might be different than for what works for everyone else around me. Um, I think self-love means honoring our emotional world, our emotional body, the hormones, the energies, the things that you know make that very complicated expanse of our emotions as humans, which contain information um, that help us navigate life. Um, I believe that we have an indescribable essence, whether you want to call it a spirit or a soul or not. Um, and I believe that essence, you know, needs safety and space to express itself. Um, and I don't believe that many of us are loving of ourselves. We've developed habits and patterns in one or all of those areas where we're not in acceptance. And mm -hmm. what I, that's how I define love is acceptance. And, and I'm going to get a bit deeper with this for all of self, right? For the shadow that I think a lot of us are beginning to highlight and see evidence of meaning for the parts of ourself that maybe at one point weren't made to feel worthy or didn't feel safe to mm -hmm. express. Um, so self-love isn't just, you know, thinking positively about self or writing the one affirmation, I love myself. In my opinion, it's an action. And it means becoming transparent, becoming intimate with the self, which means seeing all of the self. And a mm -hmm. lot of us, like I said, have been, have been conditioned to make compromises, have, con have been conditioned around love that I think is conditional. I'm only mm -hmm. loved when I show up in this way, or if I hide these aspects of myself. So I think self-love becomes all-inclusive when we can accept all parts of self. Oh, that's beautiful. And I agree. I know for myself, shame and guilt were something that I really struggled with immensely through, throughout my lifetime. And for me, one of the most empowering ways for me to truly um, start healing these wounds around shame and guilt was being transparent. And my podcast has given me a, you know, a platform to be able to have transparency and vulnerability and express these things that I was so shameful and so guilty of. And for me personally, as I've had the opportunity to bring these things to surface and have conversations around them, it's been immensely healing for me and letting go of all of that shame and guilt. So what are some other ways that individuals can kind of work towards healing the shame and guilt wounds without having a podcast to, um, <laughs> you know, air all their dirty laundry? I mean, I can share too, Heather, that, that, that the Instagram account, the holistic psychologist was an exercise in just that me um, after you know witnessing myself and my my conditioned habits and patterns for long enough 
I very overwhelmingly saw how in most aspects and most relationships of my life, personal and professional, I diluted my truth. Um, I ran it through first the filter of how might this truth make you feel? Mm -hmm. And if it was anything less than amazing or so I imagined it would be, I did not share that particular truth or aspect of myself. I just kept it in. Um, so for me, the decision to go online, like I said, without any expectation of who would be the receivers of these, this truth or how many who's, um, for me, it was just that, that you know, personal exercise in, in speaking and in, in getting it out there. Um, and again, not everyone has to create a visible platform. For some of us, the first leg of the journey is internal solely. It's mm -hmm. just being present and a witness to ourselves resisting that urge to get in the monkey mind where I just descend in judgment around what I'm seeing and actually embodying what I'm experiencing and feeling and just being with the sensation, whatever it might be, as uncomfortable as it might be in that moment. Or just like I've done, witnessing habits and patterns that maybe we have retained from that which was modeled to us that might not be serving us, though seeing it in real time. So for a lot of us, it's, it's, being intimate, it's viewing the self, it's just telling ourself those honest truths. And then, and this is why I'm so impassioned about the hashtag self healers. Um, and I, and I, you know, I love seeing the engagement within the community. And now I've translated that into a membership, the self healers circle. It's because I understand that we are interpersonal creatures. We actually cannot heal in vacuums alone on islands. So translating that authentic honesty into relationships is an integral part of the healing journey. So for those of us, it doesn't, again, have to be professing to, to innumerable others on an on a, um, uh, Instagram platform or any sort of social media. It might be just finding the one other human that we can cultivate because it might mean creating a new space of safety where then I can translate the new truth that I'm becoming aware of within myself into now a relationship with someone else and then into the collective at large. Yeah, I love that. And I think that community is such a huge part of that. I think there's this conception that we have to do our healing alone. You know, I can't show up for a relationship. I can't, you know, be the, be the mom. I can't do the thing until I'm hundred percent healed. And the reality is, is that that's just an unrealistic expectation. And if we can truly lean into that community and, and see that others are also struggling with some of the same emotions, the same habits. Um, it, it really does help humanize the experience instead of isolate it so immensely. Yeah, and not only is it unattainable, um, you know, waiting to this state of done, um, I've yeah. to find this elusive, I used to call it my utopian hippie hammock. So <laughs> is, I'm still looking, um, but I, you know, I don't think that's, that's part of it, you know, it's embodying that there isn't a doneness. And it's also acknowledging the reality that relations or our relational dynamics are part of what needs to be healed for most of us. In my book, I talk about patterns that I call trauma bonds, all of the conditioned ways that we operate in relationships that aren't serving our highest self or that interconnected being. Um, so you know, a, a lot of us have to break the habits and patterns in our relationships by showing up differently in general. Absolutely. So with you saying that, you know, one thing I'd like to talk to you about, something I personally struggled with was um, 
really just kind of being addicted and not being self-aware to the addiction I had around my nervous system and my nervous system response. And for me personally, this did draw me to a lot of trauma bonding, not recognizing that that's what was, you know, foundationally going on behind the scenes. But I would enter these very dysfunctional relationships, friendships, um, partnerships, and that, you know, were highly dysfunctional, um, but there was a sense of security in it. It felt very familiar, even though I was miserable and, you know, anxiety ridden, um, but I couldn't, I just, I didn't realize how addicted to the central nervous system response that I was having. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I love um, you, you initiating this question. Um, and sharing your own experience. Thank you, Heather. And I'll share a bit of mine um, around this concept, what I call emotional addiction. And I do believe that we can become very patterned. Um, all of these patterns typically, again, operating outside of our conscious awareness that keep us stuck in particularly familiar ways of feeing, mm-hmm. feeling, and then coping. You know, what do we do with, with the feeling and how do we shift and change our way of being and or, you know, our, our coping tools or our coping mechanisms. So going back in time, um, however it is you believe we get here to this beautiful earth experience, we arrive um, and we actually arrive in a complete state of dependency. Um, we cannot care and sustain life on our own which is why when I said earlier, we're wired to connect, our literal survival when we're in our infancy depends on those connections. Specifically, you know, in our earliest years to continue to meet the needs of our physical body, to sustain life itself. Mm -hmm. And then that translates into our emotional and our spiritual worlds. We so happen, become very adaptive. We're, we're so receptive, we're taking the world in, our brain is firing in, in a specific theta wave pattern because we're learning, we're learning, we're like big sponges and we're also very adaptive sponges. So what we learn to do very early on is modify certain ways of being, certain reactions like we shared earlier that might've resulted in a shameful experience. We modify our way of being and our way of relating to others in particular. And what we're doing all along, unbeknownst to us in our infancy, of course, is we're firing and wiring all of these neural pathways in our brain. We're thinking thoughts consistently enough, they're mapping onto physiological changes in our body consistently enough that are mapping onto consistent conditioned ways of being. And we almost have a us that gets formed. I call it a little avatar of ourselves mm-hmm. being stored through these neural, neural networks in our subconscious. So now flash forward in time. Now I want to change. Logically, I've lived those habits and patterns long enough and I don't know, I don't, I see the ways that they're no longer serving me. So now I set an intention. So for me, I saw habits and patterns around stress in particular. I'll use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. I know from a very young age, I had a lot, particularly of medical fires, little things happening, serious things happening, sister, mother who, you know, had medical issues. There were a lot of fires in my house. Always something was a a mindset. So stress Mm -hmm. was high. I was very overwhelmed. Stress became my resting state. Now flash forward in time, I'm say in my 20s, I'm not even in that home. I'm living alone. I'm with my own partner, perhaps. I'm flash forward to say a peaceful Sunday. And what I started to notice in myself 
were one of two things. On that peaceful Sunday, I actually wasn't at peace. If I had quote unquote nothing to do, I either would get this visceral, indescribable agitation where everything in my environment would start to drive me crazy. And if there was a mess before you knew it, I was up cleaning. So I was agitating my environment or say there was a person next to me, my partner, perhaps I would, that agitation, I might translate it interpersonally. Before I knew it, I remembered that look that my partner gave me at breakfast when I said that thing. And you know what? Now is the great time to explore what she meant by that look. And now before I know it, I might agitate my relationship. And now before I know it, I'm in a stress response. Now my body is mapping on to the cortisol, the adrenaline, and that nervous system state of activation. What happened there? That's a prime example of what I term emotional addiction. The familiar mm -hmm. way of being with my cortisol and my adrenaline and all of the things that I just know I do when I'm in that state. In absence of that, my subconscious was registering that as unfamiliar. And my sub to, to all of our subconsciouses out there, that which is unfamiliar is possibly threatening to be avoided. So that illustration I gave, that agitation in my body or in my mind, that reason to become conflicted again or stressed, right, was a resistance. That's what I call it. It was my reason to go back into those neuronal ruts. And mm -hmm. our brain is good at this too. This is all operating, A, outside of our awareness, and B, the way our neuron, neurons fire and wire, it becomes so efficient we almost can't stop that trajectory once something activate, activates it in our environment. So we are quite literally then wired, right, to stay locked in those mm -hmm. familiar, often thoughts, feelings, and response patterns. I love it. So, you know, something that I've reflected on over the last couple of years, um, I, I was very much addicted to everything. Anything that kept me in life as chaos without realizing that was the driving factor. And to be perfectly honest with you, I, you know, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. I don't recall necessarily the exact moment where the switch happened and I was able to get out of that chronic central nervous system response and transition over into a place of peace and contentment. I don't know exactly like what the time frame was. It I just woke up one morning realizing I was no longer addicted to anything. I was like, "Oh my gosh, when how did this happen? You know, when did this happen?" So is this something that, you know, is this common? Like, what does this transition look like for most people? It looks different. I think it looks different for each of us. And, and for me, it was such a shift that I imagine it. I don't remember the moment, though. For me, it didn't. It wasn't like an aha. I didn't just flip the light switch, as I like to say. And there wasn't a before and an after. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it was a process. And the beginning of the process came when I first noticed how much I, I was that I might have been that 99.9999% person living in autopilot. So for me, it was big and glaring how consistently I had to learn, teach my mind, my brain actually, fire, right? That prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex enough that th that pathway, right, got a little stronger so that I could become conscious. And mm -hmm. then in my conscious, very dysregulated body, I then saw how much time I was spending in that state of stress and how much my mind, again, kept contributing. 
because our mind in absence of, of the stressor will find it, right? Mm -hmm. That's when we get that monkey mind, right? If my body, if my mind is doing that top down scan of my body and it feels that cortisol or maybe that absence of, and it's used to that cortisol, it'll start to send signals up to my mind now. And my mind's going to try to make sense of it. Oh, well, there's a lot of cortisol in this body here because we're stressed about, right? That big, scary thing that's happening around the corner. Just, you get the example. Mm -hmm. so for me, again, it was a very gradual, once I was embodied, once I noticed how dysregulated my body was, it was building in, for me, it was breath work. That became my go-to consistent practice that I developed into a habit, meaning I tuned into my breath throughout my day. I noticed all of the ways I constricted or held my breath, further sending those signals of stress up to my mind. And then very gradually, I learned how to consciously and intentionally control my breath, learning how to breathe from my belly, that then before I emerged like you into, oh, peace, I'm not so uncomfortable here. This isn't so unfamiliar. And I think yeah. what you are offering and what I'm describing is actually evidence of what we call the process of widening the window. We don't go from a 99 in stress to a zero overnight. We very gradually learn how to tolerate all of these states of the unfamiliar, even if logically, again, it's the direction I wanna go in, it'll still be unfamiliar until it starts to settle in to become our new familiar or our new normal. Yeah, it's so rewarding. <laughs> it's so amazing when you do have that recognition, you know, right when you recognize that you're you're showing up in the world differently, you're responding differently instead of reacting. I think for me that was the the big aha moment when I recognized, "Whoa, wait a minute. In past circumstances, this would have derailed me. I would have been an absolute mess." And I remember a specific night crawling in bed after a pretty traumatizing day and feeling, you know, taking a couple of really deep breaths and feeling a sense of peace and comfort just literally overtake my entire physical body. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So incredible. And, and that's, you know, and just to something to acknowledge too, in the moments where we really need it are going to be the moments that shift and change the, the longest, the latest, the last, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's about, and I think this is why change becomes difficult too. It's about maintaining and building these habits and patterns. For me, doing those consciousness practices day in and day out, learning how to harness my breath day in and day out so that when I became activated and I really needed to maintain consciousness and I really needed to use my breath to deescalate me just enough to make that new choice, then I could. And the mm -hmm. reason why I'm saying that and this goes into the concept of addiction in general, right? It's about delaying gratification. It's about doing things that we know maybe don't have the immediate impact, doing them consistently enough until in time they do. And this is what happens. Like I said, when we go back, especially when it's an emotional part of our subconscious that we're revisiting, when we're activated or triggered, as we like to say, when we're having a really big feeling those are the, the times when we need to consciously learn how to deescalate ourselves and create that safety. And like I said, those are the times when it'll be the last, right? Maintaining consciousness, learning how to deescalate myself when I really need it is the last thing to happen. Yet a lot of us try to take the pathway of, well, let me just figure out what I need to do in that moment, right? When I'm at that 10 to mm -hmm. make things different. And unfortunately, I, I guess what I'm suggesting here 
is to create change in that moment when I'm almost at that 10 is to create new habits in all of the moments that led up to that moment. And a lot of us, like I said, the circumvent, we want to do it one time when we really need it and then forget it until the next moment that we really need it. And unfortunately, I don't believe that's how we maintain the change that we're all looking for. I agree. And I, I feel like that's a lot, you know, where we kind of associate with having to try and control outcomes. We have to, we're so, you know, a, we're so focused on having to control the outcome. And then when we can't control the outcome, then we victimize ourselves. We fall back into that negative loop. So in a sense that, you know, in my opinion, I feel that when we're being the victim and we're more trying to control the outcomes, that's those lower levels of consciousness that we're stuck in. And I see many, many people stuck there having difficulty with, you know, again, it goes back, we have lots of self-awareness, but we're still trying to control the outcome. And then when we can't or don't get the desired outcome, we're right back to being the victim, falling back into the self-sabotaging behaviors that elicit the central nervous system response. And here we are on the roller coaster ride again. Yeah. And what I know about humans, Heather, is that we don't like uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So that outcome that is uncertain, which is every outcome, because here's something else that we tolerate very limitedly as humans is that we can't control the world around us as much as we would like to think we can. We can't dictate, you know, and control what the people around us do and how they show up in any given moment as much as we would like. So a lot of us, you know, humans in general at our core, uncertainty could possibly be threatening. So there's a very real evolutionary reason um, why we don't like that, though. Like I said, we also like to have control. We like this idea um, that you know things are predictable. And when they're not, um, as they often aren't as part of this experience, we do attempt all of the things and all of the ways to maintain an, an illusionary, illusionary sense of control. Um, and a lot of times that means you know dictating outcomes or trying to control um, the way people around us are responding. Um, and I think, the work of healing, like we talked about, showing up differently, creating that space of empowerment from our, for ourselves, helps us shift from that very reactive way that most mm-hmm. of us have lived life. It's understandable when many of us do, you know, either directly or indirectly proclaim victimization, I'm a victim, I can't create change, that's real. The lived experience for them and like myself has been reactivity, has been thing in the environment happens, My subconscious dictates what happens next. So me, I don't really get a say, yet I'm along for the ride, accumulating all the consequences of all of those happening. So expanding into that empowerment place of consciousness, into consciousness, allows us to create choice. And once we shift into making choices, we now can little by little gradually begin to feel less of a victim because we actually are having a say now. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that's so powerful. I used to be victim, so victim. I was such a victim. And now at the point I am in my life, looking back over this journey, I celebrate, I get excited. I cheer about all of those moments that I used to victimize myself. And I think, wow, how lucky am I to have been able to have all of these life experiences that have allowed me to get to the 
get to this place and have a new sense of appreciation and understanding for this human experience that we're having and how we're interacting collectively. And it's so empowering. I mean, it's just, it's such a rewarding feeling of like, man, we truly are the co-creators of our life. And if we can learn to accept that, it's a game changer. Mm -hmm. And that's when, when we talk about creating change, you'll hear me talk about a concept that I call a small daily promise. So this wraps this all together. Change is hard. Our subconscious is constantly trying to keep us in those familiars, whether it is the emotional addiction or the repetitive thoughts, that reactive way of being, right? We like to stay in that space. So like we talked about change, anything that's unfamiliar will feel uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. resistance is part of shifting, of showing up differently. So my typical suggestion you'll hear me um, offer is building in a new habit of what I call a small daily promise, which is really just the focus on creating one new small daily choice, not five, not 10, not my life has to be different from top to bottom tomorrow because we'll overwhelm ourselves. Change that one small daily choice will be difficult enough. So you'll hear me when I talk about small daily promise, Heather, while I've shared, and there's one particular self healer that I'm always sharing about. Her name is Allie and she's in the book because the amount of change that she created with her one small daily promise of one glass of water each day is incredible. Here's where I offer all of the listeners. It doesn't matter what the promise itself is, whether it's that one glass of water, right? Whether it's one deep belly breath, whatever the promise is matters less than the action of keeping the promise. Mm. That's the empowerment that you're describing. That's for many of us reversing the lifetime of a million promises that I meant to keep for myself. And I haven't for all of the reasons why I haven't yet here I am showing myself living, which I believe is the greatest teacher, the wisdom of living and experience. I get to create that. So it's mm -hmm. less about the promise itself. I'll have people ask me, well, what promise should I start with? And here's where I say, it doesn't matter. It's the action of keeping it that empowers Absolutely. the shift from reactive life's happening to me to, well, wait a minute, life might be really difficult around me. And here's some space I can create for myself to begin to make new choices, whatever they might be. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I feel like that falls into alignment with rebuilding that self-respect and learning how to stop the self-betrayal just by setting one little realistic goal, you know, promise, as you say, to ourselves it really allows us an opportunity to show up in a different way and start building that self relationship that so many of us have lacked since, you know, as early as potentially birth. So. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of us are disconnected or, or not living authentically in alignment with any or all of those aspects of self. Some of us aren't connected enough to our body to be able to know how, it needs care and to be able to therefore show up in care of it in the best way that will optimally translate to wellness. Um, for some of us, let me back it up even further. Wellness isn't even a topic of possible conversation because some of us are so limited, right? Into this disease management. I just have this thing forever and I don't actually get to create wellness in my life. Um, so a lot of it, like I said, for many of us is around caring for our actual physical body. 
then mm-hmm. we have that whole complicated emotional mess that we are as humans. And I'll be the first person to acknowledge, even as a doctor of clinical psychology, right, where I was the professional in the room, seemingly showing up to help people navigate their emotions, I had no experience with navigating my own, at least not in a healthy or adaptive way. Um, I had the things I did, which were check out, not tend to them, not even touch base with what was going on, just to stay comfortably away from them. Mm-hmm. My spirit self or my spirit essence, you know, many of us don't comfortably or safely know how to, to show up um, in honoring. So the pathway back, those small promises can be in any of those areas. And I do think it's the same goal um, end point, which is to be visible, be known to the self, all of the self, and to honor the needs in any of those areas. Mm-hmm. I love it. So it really does allow us an opportunity to kind of reparent ourselves by committing to these small daily habits, right? I believe that is a journey that all of us as adults um, can create, you know, more sustainable habits and patterns and relationship dynamics um, if we engage in that. So not being in adulthood doesn't mean um, that a lot of the, the ways of being that we've adapted from that childhood experience are serving us. So yes, mm-hmm. practice again, I'm really in, in line with the book title of reparenting as a daily action, reparenting as me showing up, connected to myself to tune in to my ever-changing self, because that's mm-hmm. the beautiful part of this experience as well. Um, even those of us who so desperately want the to-do list, right, want the the checklist. Um, how do we know if that checklist is going to continue to serve our ever-changing, aging souls and bodies? We don't know that. Um, so again, I think empowerment begins with just turning inward to check in with self. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that you know a lot of people, including myself, part of the resistance to starting the true emotional healing journey um, was fear-based. It was fear of how are my parents going to react? How are my siblings going to react? Um, you know, how are my my circle of friends going to react to me doing this work and starting to show up as a different individual? I feel that this is something I've personally struggled with, um, especially with having a visible platform to speak to and share these incidences, these moments, these stories, these epiphanies um, that so many around us, you know, aren't accepting. They're not accepting of us doing this work and, and making these changes because, you know, there, there tends to be criticism that starts to come out. So. What is your advice for the individual who really knows that they need to lean in, but are very fearful of the repercussions from their environment? I want to first normalize the fear. Um, you know, we become uh, our our sense of self, right? Which is everything from those repetitive thoughts we think, the typical ways we feel, the ways we show up in the world, is for many of us worn as a part of our identity, right? So I wanna first just focus on, on self and change and transformation before even going to the reactions of those outward because self and change is a lot of shedding, a lot of mourning, a lot of loss as we challenge beliefs 
that many of us, like I said, had wrapped up around who we imagined ourselves to be and that reflected in how we showed up in the world for, for some of us decades upon decades of life. There's a lot of internal discomfort mm -hmm. um, that comes along with shifting and changing those narratives. And then of course, as that begins to translate outward, as you begin to show up directly saying things differently, indirectly being in a different way, the environments around us might start to feel those, those ripples, feel mm -hmm. those shifts and changes. Um, and it might not all be positive. So again, at the surface, acknowledging that we're now thrusting the people around us and our relationships with those people into an unfamiliar space. At the bare minimum, as we begin to show up differently in our relationships, what we're going to do within that space with everyone that we're in relationship with is violate their expectation. They've come to have expectations of us. You're always available when I call in the middle of the night, Nicole. So if I come to decide that sleep is important to me and maybe a new boundary is to no longer be available, anyone may call me in the middle of the night because that's what a boundary is. I might not, my phone might be turned off or I might have it on silent, mm -hmm. right? However, that caller in the middle of the night, if that's their habit and, and pattern, might be wondering, you know, her relation, uh, the expectation is violated. Where's Nicole when she's always there? Right. And then that gets more complicated by how are we showing up? How are we challenging this new, this, this pre-existing many times relationship? And again, what is the effect it has on others? I talk a lot in my book about um, the process, really your journey of learning how to tolerate being misunderstood. Um, mm -hmm. That's how I kind of conceptualize this. You know, having moments where one's, one's ways of being or one's beliefs don't align with others in your life. Mm -hmm. And as a lot of us shed beliefs and create new ones and create new ways of being for ourselves, areas that we were maybe once in alignment with those around us might start to become a little less in alignment. Um, and so with that is tolerating and navigating those different discomforts, maybe those moments where you are being misunderstood or where your reality isn't being honored, um, where someone else is denying it or telling you how wrong you are for doing what you're doing or how dangerous it is that you're living or making the choices that you're living. Um, okay. Now, this is you know a, a space where it's complicated and it's difficult because other people can provide incredibly helpful feedback simply because they're not us, they're objective, mm -hmm. right? They can see for some of us habits and patterns that maybe we don't want to yet see ourselves. However, not everyone's feedback is as I say about us at all, right? What someone might be reacting to in that moment might be the person who's feeling in your unavailability now abandoned mm -hmm. because of not you, Maybe because of, you know, their caregiver who was not present to them in their childhood yet in that moment, it might as well be you because it's being projected on you. And this is where there is no formula, right? Mm -hmm. This is where we have to, the way I frame it in my head is get, if we do put ourselves out there in whatever way in relationship on social media, like you and I do, we have to anticipate the presence of feedback. We might hear some things about how someone's experiencing us or what they think about what we're saying. That's part of self-expressing. That's why it is so vulnerable and is so complicated. And then we can learn how to be a receptive listener, hear everything everyone's saying, right? And then if we go back to our own self, our own safety, try it on for size, 
begrudgingly in those moments where that assessment from an objective party fits and we don't want to hear it, right? Settle into the discomfort that might come up. I've lived that experience. I can't even tell you, Heather, how many times was my partner Lolly, who would see before I was willing to see habits and patterns around my relationship with my family, my dynamics, and very lovingly try, you know, attempt it to offer mm -hmm. them to my visual for my witnessing. And I didn't want her, to, I didn't want it. I mean, and I reacted really not positively. You know, you don't understand, you don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. You're not being supportive over time, right? When I brought that truth back to my space, there was a little part of me intuitively that was like, oh, damn. Okay. You know, I don't like this. So I'll, I'll receive it. And then there are occasions where we don't have to, where it isn't our truth, where it isn't about us. And in those moments, at least what I attempt to cultivate is acceptance of their reality being for them and being what's true for them in this moment, even if it makes me feel terribly or, or not, if it's not accurate, according to me, holding the space for me standing and embodying my truth. And the reason I am intentional about speaking that last part is because I think we've all lived a habit um, of either having our reality invalidated and or we do that to ourselves and or other people. Um, we like to make other people wrong to make ourselves right. Um, and I, I know that that can create a lot of disconnect um, mm -hmm. authentic self. So like I said, it's learning how to be a receiver of information um, and having that safe space and sometimes with others of support that you can go back to and sift through and acknowledging that in some instances, it is learning how to tolerate being misunderstood. Other people carrying perception, perceptions of you um, that might not be accurate. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think that there's so much goodness in all of that. So you've kind of been deemed as a bit of a disruptor in the you know psychotherapy world and practice. And I feel that you've done an incredible job of modeling exactly what we just spoke to with um, you know, some criticism and attacks that you've personally had over the last year. So kind of talk to me a little bit about how you were able to navigate through that in a healthy way without taking the, the steps backwards and convincing yourself that you can't write this book, that you've got to shut down your social media channel because I think that for a lot of individuals that's their go-to that you know when they start to feel that criticism for speaking their truth they start to panic that judgment that criticism all the old stories come back into play so are would you like to talk a little bit about that I think yeah and I, I go as far Heather to say that I think that fear of that possible anticipated criticism prevents creators prevents people from even putting their work out there. And then of course, once it's out there um, and you do start to hear perceptions and, and all of this starts to come in, perspectives, um, obviously it gets more challenging. Though I know a lot of creators who you know, have the idea of something that they wanna see on social media or that they wanna do for themselves in their business or within their work and are prevented from even taking that first step forward. Um, so like I said, for me, that was an incredible challenge. I was someone who filtered down my truths, who thought about how to word it. So it came off, um, you know, in the most palpable way for as many people as possible. And I would lie if I didn't say that that was an ongoing practice when I began. Um, probably if you scroll back, you might even see slightly different shifts in the way that I'm speaking certain things. 
because I got more and more comfortable with standing in my truth as I heard the critique and the criticism come in. Um, and the process that I used, as, as I suggested everyone to use, is first it started internally, right? For me, it was me continuing to embody alignment in all areas, even outside of social media, that continued to empower me to know when I was in and out of alignment on social media. So again, this isn't where the work just happens on social media. Um, embodying the work and learning how to sift through um, and standing in our own truth happens outside of it. And then once mm -hmm. the criticism comes in, um, like I said, I, I did look at it. I'm always in my comments. I'm always, here's where my emotional addiction comes in. I know exactly where to go to hear some people's opinions of some truths about my work that don't align with mine. And I'll, I'll know when I like to look at them when I'm feeling agitated. And every mm -hmm. now and again, I can start to feel that pull, that compulsion, feeling a little internal agitation. And before you know it, I might be diving down a rabbit hole of, you know, things that are going to mirror stress for me. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's just such an interesting process. Social media, a lot of the work of healing, like I said, maps on to what we're doing inside, even translating it in the realm of social media and then if in those areas where you're able to separate yourself out i would lie again if i said it wasn't painful mm -hmm. um, there's been some truths that sit in totally opposition to what i believe of myself that some people might think well why would you even let that bother you nicole that's so not who you are and who you know yourself to be yet sometimes that's the most incredibly difficult space to allow um to right be yeah, absolutely. I know, you know, I'm a big, I'm a, an, a huge supporter of you. I just absolutely love the work that you're doing. I have so much respect for you and the work that you're doing. And I actually started receiving messages from individuals for being a supporter of you. And I was quite shocked. I'm not going to lie. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. I, I was, I couldn't believe it. And you know, the very first question that I had to ask myself was intention. What is the intention behind this work? And when you're in alignment with the intention, um, it allows you to really be able to see your truth and be able to speak to that truth more um, easily, you know, with, with ease, knowing that the purpose behind it is for working for the greater good and not just our own individual, you know, serving needs, but it's really truly about helping to serve the collective. And so for me, it was very easy to just dismiss those things like, huh, I see what's happening here. You know, they're trying to trigger us because, you know, they want to pull us back down in our consciousness and eh, not happening today, my friend. So I commend you. I think that you've really done a beautiful job of um, navigating and also using, you know, this as an example with your own followers on how to do the work. This is how you do the work. I appreciate you acknowledging that, Heather. And, and I think an additional thing that I, I make space for in those moments is compassion. It's mm -hmm. compassion because, uh, you know, more often than not, I mean, I might even go as far to say is I find very little, very few moments of where people are acting intentionally when they're being mm -hmm. reactive in particular. Absolutely. So any reaction, especially, you know, and reactions translate over social media, even if it's in print, right? Anytime something is feeling really, really big, I, I tr even if it's what's coming out, even if the projection is, is hurtful and is destabilizing, 
And again, there were moments where I said where my foundation was shook, where I took moments off social media to, to stick my head down and go inward like I just described and to try all of these things on for size and to watch myself in the world and, and see, you know, try to see if I saw instance of it. Um, and it can, it can really, I think, shake us to our core um, and understanding and holding the space for the compassion for the other. So mm -hmm. even if the reaction is hurting me or is destabilizing me. And those are the moments where I put up my boundaries. I created my own safety. I went back to my supportive relationships and gained the support, um, emotional support that I needed. Um, however, I could hold compassion because what I was able to see in those moments was pain, was the pain of the other person. And I know all of the moments that I still have where I am reacting in pain. And I might say and do hurtful things, even to those that I intentionally love and intend to show up in action of love for each and every day. And I know in the moments where I don't, it's because there's, there's hurt there. So that I think can be a helpful suggestion to, um, to put up the boundary, to create the safety that you need for yourself in the world. And then in that space, some of us can extend that compassion for what we're mm -hmm. experiencing to the other person. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that life's universal lesson is, is truly understanding compassion. Compassion is that love for all of us, seeing that we are all one in the same. And, you know, um, if we can show up with the compassion, we can truly start stepping into living our heaven on earth now in the present moment. Yes. Well, Thank you so much for being with us today and dropping all these amazing bombs on everyone. It's always such a pleasure to have an opportunity to interview you. And I'm so immensely proud of you. Congratulations on the book release. Everyone go out, get your hands on a copy of How to Do the Work. I cannot wait to get my copy so that I can start diving in and, and learning, learning and growing. Thank you so, so Thank so you. Thanks for joining us on the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what you think. I love reading your feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram at Heather Duranja. And don't forget to take a screenshot that you're listening to the podcast and tag me. I love to share it. See you on the next episode.